to you. First Samuel chapter 14 this evening, our journey through the Bible. If you're here this evening and you have, uh, are without a Bible, we sure want you to have one and follow along with us this evening. So just raise your hand. The men that are coming up the aisles right now will spot you and get one into your hands. First Samuel chapter 14. Jonathan, uh, Saul's son, uh, has uh, in chapter 13 attacked a garrison of the Philistines that had set up kind of an outpost in the land of Israel. They had no fear of the children of Israel at this time. They were uh, stronger than the children of Israel in every way. So they made their way into the land and did about whatever they wanted uh, to do. As Jonathan attacked that garrison of the Philistines and he defeated them, uh, the Philistine response was massive. They put together their military and they came into the land of Israel with, uh, as we're told in the scriptures, 30,000 chariots, probably 3,000. But once you start to get up into the thousands and you're armed with sticks and clubs, uh, it's formidable. 6,000 horsemen and so many soldiers, well-armed soldiers, that they couldn't even uh, be counted. And so they invaded the land and they encamped in Michmash. And Saul and Jonathan and uh, just 600 men of Israel encamped in, in the place of, uh, called Gibeah. And so physically the children of Israel are completely overwhelmed in every way for battle. I mean, numerically... Uh, there's no comparison, 600 against an army that can't be uh, counted. In terms of weaponry, the Philistine, uh, uh, they had all of the weapons and iron weapons and these kind of things. And, and uh, the children of Israel, only Saul and only Jonathan had any kind of iron weapons. And then strategically, the uh, Philistines have taken control of the high ground and you always want the high ground in any kind of a battle and so uh, this is a terrible, terrible one-sided uh, situation that the children of Israel uh, find themselves in the middle of and uh, basically they've kind of gotten into this trouble because of Jonathan and God is going to use Jonathan to more than get them out of it. Now it happens, uh, chapter 14 verse 1, one day, as they're kind of in this uh, place of holding one, one another off, there is a uh, kind of a, uh, a, a very narrow pass that separates the two armies. And, uh, and so it was, it was a good situation in that way and made it difficult for the Philistines to do a frontal attack on even that small number of the children of Israel. So it happened one day that Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who bore his armor... And he said, come, let us go over to the Philistines' garrison that's on the other side. <clears throat> but he did not tell his father. Now, so he's going to do this secretly. Probably, I mean, his father is uh, very happy, as we're going to see here in verse 2. Why don't we just head into it? Verse 2. Saul was sitting in the outskirts of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree. I love the detail of God's word which is in Migron, and the people who were with him were about 600 men. And so 
Here is Saul. He is very content with these kind of odds to uh, kind of be at a standoff with this uh, Philistine army. And so he's uh, uh, felt like probably everybody else in Israel except Jonathan that this is the most that you could hope for. I mean, let's be realistic. Jonathan, whatever you do, don't attack these people any more and provoke them any more than you've already done. Now, a standoff with the enemy, even at overwhelming odds, that's fine for us all and fine for the children of Israel as a whole. It is not okay with Jonathan. Because Jonathan, the children of Israel at this time, Saul also, and we can look at Saul and say, look, what, what's the beef with Saul? I understand where he's coming from entirely. But the passage is entire to stre- in, intended to, in, to stretch our faith. So everyone on the Israel side of things is looking at their God in the light of the circumstances And Jonathan is the only one that comes on the scene and looks at the circumstances in the light of the greatness of God. And those are going to produce two entirely different qualities of faith and two entirely different qualities of life. Now, so Jonathan begins to talk to his armor bearer. Now, remember in those days an armor bearer wasn't like a caddy who kind of just carried your clubs around from battle to battle. This was somebody who was also skilled in warfare. You could find yourself in a place where your life depended upon them. So this is a tremendous uh, right arm to Jonathan. And we're going to see that this guy is not only a very brave man, but he has a kindred spirit spiritually uh, with Jonathan and is kind of the only one uh, in Israel at that time. Uh, Samuel's not on the scene in, in this fix that they find themselves in. And so Ahijah, the son of Ahitab, uh, Ichabod's brother, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the Lord's priest in Shiloh, was wearing the ephod, but the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. And so um, here is the, the high priest, and all in, is, is uh, in the Urim and the Thummim, as we'll see, is for determining the will of God. Everything is out here in this uh, area of the, of the battlefield. And so here is Jonathan. He takes, uh, wants to take this foray into the camp of the Philistines. Now, when, in terms of Jonathan, Jonathan's faith, um, when he looks at these uh, uh, Philistines, let's see if we... Mm-hmm. Oh, let's wait till verse 6. Verse 4. And between the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a sharp rock on one side, kind of a cliff, and a sharp rock on the other side, a ravine in between the two. And the name of uh, the one was Bozes, which means shining, so it evidently sat on the side where the sun, its strength would uh, reflect off of it. And the name of the other side was called Senna. And uh, which means thorny, which could mean that there were a lot of thorn bushes on on that side, or probably more likely that particular uh, cliff side at the top was in the shape of a thorn. And so, but you had this narrow pass between the Philistines and the children of Israel 
a ravine uh, on, uh, between two high cliffs. And the front of the one faced northward toward Michmash and the other southward toward Gibeah. And Jonathan said to the young man who bore his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for, that's a reason word, nothing restrains the Lord from saving by many or by few. And so here is uh, Jonathan's faith on display. And when he looks at these Philistines that have come in, in these kind of numbers, you can't even number the size of the army. 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and he looks at it, and to him it's an affront. Who are these uncircumcised Gentiles that think they can just wander into the land of Israel that God Almighty, the God of the Bible, has given to the children of Israel and they can come in here and just do whatever they like and act like we don't have a God to protect us? That we don't have a God to serve? And he views it as an insult against his own heart, an insult against the Jewish people, but also an insult against their God. And he rightly realizes that people are coming to a conclusion about our God as they watch us and they watch our response to the circumstances in life. This is completely unacceptable to him. And it's unacceptable to him because of his faith. And he has the faith that he has because he knows God. And he knows God very, very well. And so he looks at all of this and he realizes this is not the way uh, that things should be. And all that really mattered in terms of a battle with the Philistines for all their weaponry and all their numbers is whose side is God on in this battle. Because as the old saying goes, one plus God is a majority. And so he knew that God was the deciding factor in this battle. Now you think about what, God, what Jonathan counted the Lord for. <laughs> There's just two of them. It's him and an armor bearer. They can't even grab a horse. It's going to do one of the 30,000 chariots, much less all of the people. Now picture it. Put yourself in Jonathan's shoes. You cannot number the army. It goes out as far as you can look with your eye. 30,000 chariots lined up. I don't know how long of a line, how many miles or portions of a mile or what that is. And then the horses to bring him into battle. And when he looks at all of that, he dismisses it and says, it's nothing compared to my God. Now, I, I remember, and I'm trying to remember it by memory here at the moment, but I think it was, uh, <laughs> as you might suspect... But I, I remember reading a historical account, and I think it was Peter the Great in Russia, where one of his generals was out and vastly overwhelmed in a battle, and he requested a certain number of troops, and Peter the Great did not have the troops to allocate to him, sent him 50,000 less troops than he had requested. And his general shot back a letter and said, where are the 50,000, you know, you're shorted me 50,000 uh, troops. And Peter the Great shot back a message to him and said, I counted you for 50,000. Now what do we count God for? The circumstances of our life. 
the situations and battles we find ourselves in, spiritual and otherwise, the battles that are in. And Jonathan counted God as greater than everything else. I can tell you I'm not the old wise owl. I've walked with the Lord since 1980. Many of you have walked far longer. Some of you have walked less length of time and probably deeper than I have. I have never seen anything in this world, whatever the resources behind it, whatever the numbers behind it, whatever the power behind it, that has come up against God, that when it came the time for God to flex His strong right arm, that it was nothing as a battle. God is the determining factor in any battle we face. And because we're in Christ Jesus, we are on the right side of God and, and recipients of his, his grace. And I look at this whole thing where Jonathan looks and he says, For nothing restrains the Lord from saving by many or by few. And it's the truth. He doesn't need a lot of people. Um, he just needs people who recognize that this is true about, uh, about him. One of the things that I like about this incident with Jonathan is I never read it and say, Oh, man. Oh, boy, somebody finally gets it. I look at him, and then I'll tell you something. He is wonderful. He challenges my faith every time I read this passage. And it is a wonderful passage to rebuke any feeble faith in our heart as Christians tonight. What do we count the Lord for? And it's so easy over time, I think, especially as Christians, to become comfortable with a faith that is less than Jonathan's faith. Our, I think the passage, one of the great things that it does in terms of challenging my heart, and so I, I know it will be true for you too, is it, it challenges me and it asks me, am I still willing to do anything that God would call me to do? Sometimes I read, I read about our current economic situation and they're comparing the unemployment statistics and all these things which are just terrible, very hard. So the, the last time we were at these kind of numbers was back in 1982, that recession. And I remember it was in 1985. The recession wasn't over yet. We were still mired in that thing. They were laying off people like crazy. And I quit a job at the phone company to leave Napa to come over to here to start a church with about 40 people in regular attendance to it. Sometimes God calls you to do something before you have enough good sense <laughs> not to do what He's asking you to do. And I'll tell you, I, I sit down, I don't have a sense that the Lord's calling me anywhere else. I'm going to plant my flag right here in this church in Modesto. But I... I Look at that, and I ask myself, I know, I know too much now in some respects. I have to ask myself before the Lord, Lord, would I do anything you asked me to do? And I know I would. I don't know how much I'd kick first or what do you have to get through to me on, but I know I would do it. And this passage just really tests our heart tonight in that vein. Would we do anything? Are we willing to do anything that God would call us to do? Now, he's going to do something here, and, and he's not quite sure. He's got a, a plan in his mind, but he's not quite sure uh, God is in that plan. 
But, but he'd have never got to the victory and he'd never got to taking the step of faith until there was a willingness. And I, I just want this passage to search our hearts tonight as Christians here at Calvary Chapel Modesto and just to ask ourselves, could I say to God with all honesty in my heart, God, I would do anything you called me to do. I'd be willing to go anywhere and do anything if I was sure it was your will to do it. That's, kind of the, that's the kind of faith that he had. The kind of uh, sanctified abandonment and, and the surrender to the Lord uh, that, that he had. And so Jonathan, his armor bearer, said to him, uh, and this is why you go out in twos. The armor bearer said to him, do all that's in your heart. Go then, here I am with you according to your heart. You don't have to worry about whether I'm following you. I like the plan. Again, a kindred spirit and uh, deeply spiritual man and a man of faith. And, and here it is uh, that, that uh, they're ready to tackle this thing. And Jonathan said, all right, so here we are. We're both willing to do this. We've got that kind of faith. We're willing to spend our lives for God to do something great through us. And then Jonathan said, very well, let us cross over over to these men and will show ourselves to them. Now here's where Jonathan is. And most of life has lived in this place. They know what they're willing to do. They know what they want God to do. They just don't know that it's God's will or His timing to do it. And a lot of times we're just in that place in life where we know, I, mean, so there's that, I know there's nothing God can't do, but my question is, Is this what he wants to do? And so that's the hurdle that they face now. They've got the faith now, but now they want confirmation that God is in it. You never want to have faith in something that God isn't in. That's a misplaced faith. Sometimes we think, I think in the body of Christ, we think of faith, and when we talk about faith, and there's even the danger when I've just talked about faith even here in the last few minutes where somebody looks and says, all right, faith is just thinking about the most outrageous thing that you could do in the name of God and then just doing it. You know, just going to jump out there and do it. That's not called faith. That's called presumption. You can get hurt doing that. One of the things that I really love, and it helps keep my faith well-defined and balanced, is in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, where you've got that great hall of faith, all those men and women that are listed in that chapter. Not one of them had to guess God's will for their lives. And yet they're in the hall of faith. They are in the hall of faith not because they presumed to know God's plan when they didn't know it, became reckless, and did something crazy. That's not what faith is. That's presumption. Every one of them to a person knew what God's will was for them to do. The faith came in on whether they would do that thing that God was calling them to despite the overwhelming circumstances that they would face in being obedient to it. That's faith. Faith is not guessing the will of God. So they don't know exactly. They know this doesn't match, the circumstances don't match uh, the God that they serve, the promises of God in the Scriptures, but they don't know in terms of X's and O's what God wants to do here. So they devise a plan for God to confirm whether He is in an attack on the Philistines or he's not in on that uh, attack. So they just want some confirmation. There's nothing wrong with asking confirmation of God. Say, God, I, I'm a little fuzzy on this. 
I don't know whether you want me to go or not go or do or not do, and I know you got my number. I know you had to get through to me. And so I'm going to wait and uh, give you an opportunity to confirm it. And I think that personally, Jonathan probably had a gift of faith here where this was on his heart to do, and this was the way that the Lord was going to confirm his will to him. So he says to his armor bearer, he said, let's go up. We'll show ourselves to this camp of the Philistines. We'll come out and they'll see the two of us. If they say this to us, Wait until we come to you, then we will stand in our place and we won't go up to them. If they say, you stay there, we're coming to you, we'll know God isn't in this. But if they say thus, come up to us, then, then we'll know that we'll go up after them because if they say, you come and attack us, then we'll know the Lord has delivered them into our hand and this will be a sign for us. So what you got here is you, you have, uh, on the part of Jonathan, again, there's nothing reckless about this. Uh, he's given the Lord a lot of room to confirm his, his will here. And in fact, when, you, when the two Hebrews uh, went up and they showed themselves to the camp of the Philistines, the most likely response of the Philistines would have been, you stay right there, we're sending a party out to go get you. The, the last thing that the Philistines typically would have said is come into the, into the camp. So it, he chooses the harder thing for, uh, for, to happen here uh, as, as a sign that God is uh, in this. And so this is the plan by which they're trying to determine the will of God. And so both of them, they showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. And so they pop up you know, like two gophers and, and uh, all of these Philistines just as far as you can uh, possibly see. And the Philistines said, look, the Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden. And of course we saw last week that they had fled and they were in the caves and anywhere they could hide from the Philistines all over the land and even crossing uh, the Jordan into the east side. And then the men of the garrison called to Jonathan and his armor bearer and they said, come up to us and we'll show you something. Like we'll show you a thing or two. And so that was the sign that uh, Jonathan and the armor bearer were to attack this garrison. They put yourself garrison. It's a just, I think, gigantic army, and uh, so they they give this indication that God is in the attack. Tremendous uh, faith, it's, and it's beautiful. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, "Are we crazy? What in the world are we doing out here?" They said, "Come up after me, for the Lord has delivered them." into the hand of Israel. And Jonathan climbed up on his hands and his knees with his armor bearer after him. So they've even got to go up some kind of a, a ravine or something even to get to the Philistines. When they get there, the Philistines began to fall before Jonathan. And as he came after, uh, as he came after him, the armor bearer, he then finished them off by killing them. And that first slaughter which Jonathan and the armor bearer made was about 20 men within half an acre. And so, so uh, here they are, I mean, they're just moving quick now through this, the Philistines. And there was a trembling. Uh, the Lord now joins the battle, and uh, supernaturally, a trembling in the camp, in the field, among all of the people. And the garrison and the raiders also trembled, and the earthquake, so that it was a very great trembling. And so here is this earthquake, and it freaks the Philistines out. 
and this kind of uh, earthquake happening at just that moment in time uh, would have made them stop and think, "Uh uh-oh, the God of Israel has come to fight with these men today. And so uh, this, uh, this this would have produced fear inside of their heart. And so it was a very great trembling. Now the watchmen of Saul, they had watchmen out watching the whole camp of the Philistines. And uh, they, they looked, and they're watching all of this happen, but they don't know why. They can't see Jonathan and the armor bearer. There was the multitude, and in this one corner of the camp, the Philistines are melting away. They're just uh, being uh, killed and uh, starting to panic and starting to run in all directions. They went here and they went there. And so they realize that uh, something is happening uh, in the camp of the Philistines and Saul immediately suspects that it's Jewish in origin and uh, so he called the people who, uh, who were with him and he said now call the roll and see who has gone out from us let's find out who in the world's left the camp and gone in there and attacked the Philistines and when they had called the roll surprisingly Jonathan and his armor bearer uh, were not there, and so uh, it becomes it becomes clear that uh, Jonathan's the one that's kind of taken this unauthorized but authorized by God step of faith. And Saul said to Ahijah, "Bring the ark of God here." For at that time the ark of God was with the children of Israel. And now it happened while Saul talked to the priest that the noise which was in the camp of the Philistines continued to increase. And so here these two, they're just going in there. They got this whole place in a panic. I just love it. And so Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. So what Saul's doing there under the pomegranate tree and uh, he, all this thing going on and he's trying to get the priest to, to consult with God about uh, what God's will is in the situation. And it finally kind of dawns on him and he abandons the priest and the effort of the priest that what he is watching in the camp of the Philistine is probably answered prayer. They've been asking for a miracle that this enemy would be defeated. They've got the miracle. It's happening before their eyes. And so it's like it's obvious what God is doing here. Here's a tremendous opportunity. We don't need to seek. It's time to jump into uh, the action. And then Saul and all the people who were with him uh, assembled and they went into the battle, uh, the 600, and indeed every man's sword was against his neighbor and there was a great confusion. So again, as we saw this morning, God uh, does this kind of thing, uh, Old Testament, New Testament, future, where among the Philistines they begin to get confused or whatever happens, they begin to fight uh, one another. And then on top of that, The Hebrews who were with the Philistines, evidently uh, they had deserted among the children of Israel and were uh, either mercenaries or or slaves or servants of the Philistines. They then uh, uh, rose up and they went uh, with the children of Israel into the camp from the surrounding country and they also joined uh, the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. And likewise, all of the men of Israel who had hidden in the mountains of Ephraim, when they heard that the Philistines fled, they also followed hard after them in battle. And so all of these uh, men that were hiding in caves and they had melted away in fear, now that the victory is uh, won or well 
at hand now, they then join uh, the battle. So everyone wants to join a battle that's won. And so now they begin to come out. And so the Lord uh, saved Israel that day. And the battle shifted to Beth-Avon. And the men of Israel were distressed that day. It wasn't all, you know, kind of smooth uh, sailing there. uh, Because Saul did something that was very, very foolish. And the men of Israel were distressed that day, for Saul placed the, the people under oath, saying, Cursed is the man who eats, eats any food until evening before I have taken vengeance on my enemies. And so none of the people tasted food. And so he commanded his soldiers, I want you to fight and fight and fight and not to stop you're to fast until you've defeated the Philistines and his reason was completely self-centered till Saul be avenged uh, of his enemies it's not a concern for God's reputation Uh, it's not a good concern for the safety and well-being of the people Saul is really getting unhinged now at this part of of his uh, reign. Everything's about him at this point, and it's not a good uh, development. The fact of the matter is, is if we make God first, we make God's people second or people second, then God is going to take care of us and our reputation and our legacy. But Saul's getting the whole thing backwards. It's all about him, and so he makes this foolish vow. Jonathan did not attack the Philistines. Because he was concerned about his father's reputation. God did not give a victory to the children of Israel because he was concerned about Saul's reputation. Saul is the only one that's concerned about his reputation. This is all about God's glory. This is all about the good of God's uh, people here. And uh, so here he, he thinks this is, is all about him and that, uh, that this is happening all because of him. And it's a very, very foolish vow that he makes. I mean, no experienced military leader, and he is an experienced military leader by this point in time. I mean, everyone recognizes that a soldier that's going to fight in that physical hand-to-hand kind of situation that they're going to need fuel in the course of the day. This is very rigorous, very strenuous warfare. You, th- you watch the Olympics and you watch these wrestlers that wrestle for the, you know, a certain block of time. What is it, one minute? And then how many minutes is it? We've done this before. I'm having a moment here. All right. How, many, how long is a period for wrestling? I know it's different in college in the Olympics. What is it in college? Okay, that person that answered last time has left the church. They're now attending Shelter Cove. So I, the brains of the whole church is gone. So, but you know, two minutes. All right, what's the Olympic? It's three minutes or is it two minutes? I hear three. Okay, we got two minutes in college. Okay, we're going to stick with college. So, I mean, have you ever, I, I, obviously I'm not a wrestler. They'd pin me, <laughs> I've been skinny, oh, it's a, well, enough about my problems. I sound like Saul, don't I hear? But anyway, I, you, you take that and how exhausted, I mean, how exhausting that, that kind of compressed thing. Here they're going to fight all day and he's not going to let them get any, any kind of, of fuel. It's just crazy to do that and it's even crazier to do it because you your ego is 
is so in, enlarged. And so this is what's, what's going on and, and the crazy kind of thing that he does. Now all the people of the land came to a forest and there as they're in the fighting, the Philistines are fleeing and, and they're going after them and there was honey on the ground. And when the people had come into the woods, there was the honey dripping I mean, I, I hope all of us have felt hunger like, like the sight of honey dripping would stop you no matter what you're doing. I mean, you get tired. Your body's just begging for fuel. Their bodies are begging for fuel. They see this honey. It's dripping. It's dripping. <laughs> but no one put his hand to his mouth with the honey for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard his father's chart. His father charged the people with the oath. And therefore, because he was busy fighting by that time, therefore he stretched out the end of the rod that was in his hand. He dipped it in a, a, a honeycomb and he put his hand to his mouth, that honeycomb, and his countenance was brightened. Can you feel it? You ever been like that and had a Snickers bar? Satisfying. Or Butterfinger. Just something sweet. And man, it, it, your body is just singing hallelujah inside of you for how quick the response is. You're ready to go again on things. And so he did that. That was the response that his, his body had, his countenance. It affected his face. It brightened. And then one of the people said, Your father strictly charged the people with an oath, saying, Cursed is the man who eats food this day. And the, and the, uh, and the people were faint. And Jonathan responded, saying, My father has troubled the land. Now look how my countenance is brightened because I've tasted a little of this honey. How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemy which they found. If they had been able to keep on the attack but grab and eat and, and keep moving. For now would there not have been a much greater slaughter among the Philistines. In, in other words, this has cost us a tremendous opportunity to to really devastate the Philistines because of this oath. And now they had driven back the Philistines that day from Michmash to uh, Aijalon, and so the people were very faint. And so now it is the end of the day, and uh, they're just, uh, just about ready to collapse because of the need for food, and the people rushed on the spoil. It's the end of the day, so Saul's curse is lifted now, and the men are so hungry... They then began to take the animals that they had captured, sheep and oxen and calves. They slaughtered them on the ground and uh, the people ate them with the blood. In other words, they slaughtered them uh, just as they were lying on the ground, began to cut them and, and uh, to uh, begin the barbecue on things. Contrary to the law of Moses that required an animal to be properly bled before you could then uh, eat it. And so their desperation, they've kind of been provoked to wrath here, really, um, it, with Saul's uh, vow. And so everything is just kind of, uh, you know, chaos because of it. And then they told Saul, saying, Look, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating uh, with the blood. And he said, You have dealt treacherously. So it can never be his fault. That's the kind of guy he is. 
Roll a large stone to me this day. And then Saul said, Disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, Bring me here every man's ox and every man's sheep. Slaughter them here and eat. And do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. And so every one of the people brought his ox with him that night and slaughtered it there. And then Saul built an altar to the Lord. And this was the first altar that he built to the Lord. It's interesting that Saul has now uh, reigned for a while, and uh, this is the first time we read of uh, Saul building an altar. He's been a king for several years now, and it just shows his uh, great lack of spirituality. I don't care who you are. If you're a king, you need an altar built to the Lord regularly and uh, uh, you know, daily in, in his, his kind of situation. And so that's the, but he doesn't, ref, he, he does not see God, uh, he, he doesn't see his reign or himself or the things of him as dependent upon God. He is a very unspiritual uh, person and he is, he is that uh, by choice. Now Saul said, let us go down after the Philistines by night. So he wants to continue the attack in a night attack and plunder them until the morning light, and let us not leave a man uh, uh, of them. And they said, do whatever seems good to you. They've had some food now. We're ready to follow you. And then the priest said, let us draw near to God here. Let's find out if God would be in this uh, continued, uh, you know, going after the Philistines. And so Saul asked counsel of God, and he said, shall I go down uh, after the Philistines? Will you deliver them into the hand of Israel? And the Lord did not answer him that day. And so Saul recognized it and, and felt that the fact that God did not answer him was an indication that there was some kind of sin or something wrong within the camp. And so Saul said, come over here, all you chiefs of the people, and know and see what this uh, sin was today. He realizes some kind of a sin in his estimation has occurred that has silenced the uh, voice of, of God here. And, and so he calls everybody over. And then he makes another dumb vow. This guy is a dumb vow factory. And uh, you, the Bible says don't make vows. There's just no need for it. And, uh, and he declares, for as the Lord lives who saves Israel, though it be in Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. If we find that the, that the wrongdoing or the sin is even in my son, we're going to kill him. We're going to kill whoever has silenced the voice of God in all of this. But not a man among the people answered him. So here's all these very, very brave men. And they know exactly what happened with Jonathan in the battle. They know what the Lord did and all. And so they're uh, keeping quiet about uh, Jonathan's accidental violation. And then he said to all Israel, You be on one side, and my son Jonathan and I will be on the other side in terms of determining guilt. And the people said to Saul, Do what seems good to you. And therefore Saul said to the Lord God of Israel, give a perfect lot. And so Saul and Jonathan were taken, but the people escaped. And Saul said, cast lots between my son Jonathan and me. And so Jonathan was taken. He was identified. And then Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you've done. And Jonathan told him and said, I only tasted a little honey with the end of the rod that was on my hand. So now 
I must die. And so, uh, in other words, when he says, and so now I must die as he confesses what happened on the day, he just uh, is basically saying to his dad, so now you're going to execute me for uh, taking a little bit of honey while completely ignorant of uh, your vow or of your decree. And kind of what he's probably trying to do with his father here is to get him to stop and think about the crazy thing that he is just about to do. He's given him a chance to calm down, take a deep breath, Dad, think about what you're doing here in the middle of this, this situation. It's just crazy. Uh, what what's happening here and so he says and so now I must die and Saul answered God do so and more also for you shall surely die Jonathan and so Saul commands the execution of his son and he does it in order to save face Saul won't back down and admit that he's wrong And he is a leader who can't admit it when he is wrong and when he's made a dumb decision. That is a fatal flaw in any leader, whether in a church or um, in a in a home, uh, no matter where where it, it might be, where a person is just going to publicly save face above all else. Saving face is more important than being right or doing right, more important for Saul here than even saving his son. And the, the, the inability to admit that he was wrong. I made a bad decision. It was a terrible vow. I was wrong. You were right. You know the interesting thing about being a leader and wherever God makes us a leader, is that sooner or later you have to say that. And you have to get used to saying that. Because there's only one perfect person, not that we look and say, good, I can just be imperfect as much as I want. We don't use it as an occasion to sin. But only the Lord makes the right decision all the time. All the rest of us, I don't care what calling God has on our life, I don't care what mantle or office or position that they have, Everyone else is going to make a bad decision, at least occasionally. And there has to be the willingness to look at it, even when it's gone sideways publicly, to be able to say, all right, I was, right, I was wrong, you were right, I admit that I'm, uh, I was wrong here. Now, let's, let's, the one thing we can do to redeem this is, let's not compound a wrong with another wrong. Two wrongs don't make a right, my mom used to always tell me, and they don't. And, and so now, let's do the right thing. Saul would have probably gained immense respect uh, from his army if he had done that. But because he will not do that, he is now going to force his soldiers to choose between him and the right thing. And the thing is, is that the soldiers that he's serving with, they know what the right thing is. He's forcing his own mutiny. He's forcing his own uh, split and trouble here because he won't admit that he's wrong. I hate admitting that I'm wrong. 
I've had to learn to get used to it, but I still don't like it. Oh, good. I blew that, and now I get to admit that I'm wrong publicly. You know the things I hate? Well, this I hate such a strong word. You know one of the things I hate? It's a, fun, it's a funny thing. This pastoring thing is a very funny thing. I, I, I tell God, and I'm not complaining. God knows me. He knows I'm thankful to do anything that He wants to do. I tell Him all the time, Lord, I'm a born deacon. I'm a behind-the-scenes guy. That's where my comfort zone is. And yet He has me doing this very public thing. And you just say these dumb things, you do these dumb things, and so much of what you learn is public and it's so embarrassing and all, but I mean, it's the way we grow. It's the way, he said, I, I, there's only one way I'm going to keep that guy on the straight and narrow, and that is to put him there. I honestly think that pastors are not, in missionaries or whoever we look, sometimes we put them on a pedestal, that this is like the highest position you can have. That is the remedial class in the body of Christ. Those are the people that would get into so much trouble if God didn't keep them workaholic busy. So he puts them in that position and then gives them some kind of grace for it. But so much of it's just public and you just, and it's wonderful because it's freeing over time when you kind of get used to it and you're able to say, you know what, I was wrong there. And I'll tell you, it's just hard to say it to a wife sometimes. Or to a husband, or to kiddos, or whatever it might be. But we do have to get used to saying it. Or there will be a loss of respect for anyone that can't admit they're wrong. Now let me say that when a leader does admit that they're wrong, then you leave it there. You respect them for it. You pray for them related to it. But you don't bring it up and throw it in their face every time they make the next mistake or whatever. There has to be willingness to be gracious toward people that, that uh, make mistakes and are willing to admit that they've made that mistake. And so he, he does this here. And the people, verse 45, said to Saul, Shall Jonathan die who has accomplished this great deliverance in Israel? We're going to kill the guy that God used to give us the victory? What are you thinking about here? It doesn't make any sense. I mean, God is all over this guy. He's the one that, that God used. Certainly not. So now they just stand right up to him, and Saul has forced them to do that by his, his uh, foolish standing by so poor a decision. As the Lord lives, they said, not one hair of his head shall fall to the ground for he has worked with God this day, and so the people rescued Jonathan, and he did not die. And I think that at this particular point, and we're going to see Saul, Saul's an interesting character. He's going to continue to unravel, uh, and unravel on an emotional level, on a mental level, on a spiritual uh, level. But at this point, where he forces his leadership to mutiny against him, at this point now, with his kind of level of insecurities that he has and no relationship with God to uh, walk him out of that and growth in that area, now he, he begins to 
um, he, uh, this is something that's going to really be difficult for him. The fact that he does not have the full support uh, of, of his people and they, they've given him essentially a, a vote of no confidence. And so it makes this already insecure man that much more uh, insecure. And, and so he, Jonathan was saved. Boy, what a rough couple of nights it'd probably be for Jonathan. Uh, thinking about what his dad was willing to do. And then Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. Because of this vow, um, what could have been a much greater victory, it, w- it was harmed. And so Saul established his sovereignty over Israel and fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab. So we kind of get a, a, a bird's-eye view picture of Saul's reign. Uh, fought against the, the enemies of Israel, against Moab, against the people of Ammon, against Edom, against the kings of Zobah, against the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he harassed them. And he gathered an army and attacked the Amalekites uh, and delivered Israel from the hands of those who plundered them. So not everything was bad about Saul's reign. He, he did... Uh, uh, go on the offensive and keep the enemies of Israel on the defensive and uh, in protecting the nation of uh, the land of Israel from their enemies it no doubt produced a more stable society and thus a more prosperous society so he he was uh, uh, good at that and then we're introduced to some of his family members here and it's interesting to look at some of these names because they're going to become if they aren't already they're going to become household names for you in your walk with the Lord we're going to come to know them very very well as the account unfolds. The sons of Saul were Jonathan, who we've already been introduced to and will become a kindred spirit and best friend uh, of the second king of Israel, King David. Uh, Jishuai and uh, Mal uh, Kishua, uh, these were his sons. The names of his two daughters were these. The name of the first was Mareb, and the name of the younger was Michael. And Michael is going to become uh, a wife of, of King David, and uh, we'll learn quite a bit more about her in the future. The name of Saul's wife was Ahinoam, the daughter of uh, Ahamaaz, and the name of the commander of his army was Abner, the son of Ner, Saul's uncle. And we're going to learn a lot about Abner in the future too. Kish was the father of Saul, and Ner was the father of Abner, uh, now, let me start the over again. Kish was the father of Saul, and Ner, the father of Abner, was the son of Abiel. And now these, there was fierce war with the Philistines all the days of Saul. And when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he took them for himself. And that's how the draft went in those days. Look at that guy. You're in the army. That's it. That's just the way God had said, you want a king, this is the way he's going to operate, and that's the way it operated uh, in those days uh, in order to kind of supply the manpower uh, for the military. Well, chapter 15 is, chapter 14 is such an important chapter. Uh, Chapter 15 is just comparable. It's just huge what's found in there, so we're sure not going to even begin to make a foray into that. Chapter 16 is incredible. We're talking about the Bible, aren't we? I mean, it's just one chapter after another. So we'll stop there tonight and ask the worship team to come forward and 
allow us to spend a little time in worship as we close out this evening and just some time to you know, think, uh, think things over with the Lord this evening. This wonderful example of, of Jonathan that we've read about. Great encouragement to our faith and the greatness of our God. Let's worship Him now.